Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 88. I really think y'all will enjoy the interview this week. I sat down with Los Angeles-based session guitarist and songwriter Adam Tressler. We get into all kinds of stuff, like tips for working as a touring guitarist, as well as how losing a gig with a huge pop star allowed him to pursue projects he was actually more passionate about, how he got into playing on sessions for film scores and TV shows, some tips for working remotely as a musician, his experiences signing a publishing deal early in his career, and finally his collection of 50 different fretted instruments from all around the world, all of which he plays. So stick around for all that and plenty more coming right at you. If you've been in the music industry long enough, you've probably at least once felt like you've been stuck in a loop of the same setback. Now, most of us start to look outward and place blame on others, but I think the quickest way to break this cycle is to ask yourself one simple question. Am I learning the right lessons from my mistakes? What do I mean by learn the right lesson? I'm essentially talking about having the stomach to objectively reflect on what you've done wrong so that you can actually learn from it. Now, let's be honest. People do not like to be wrong, and just the thought of reflecting on what we did wrong is enough to make most of us cringe. But if you're unwilling to identify what actually went wrong in a situation, how are you ever going to not make that same mistake again? So the first step to learning the right lesson is to reflect on your failures. It's okay if you need a second to separate, but what's important is that you're willing to objectively reflect on what went wrong in a particular situation. Approach it as if you're giving advice to a friend, except that friend is you just a couple days earlier. The next step is to be sure you're asking yourself the right questions about what went wrong. And when you're doing this, it's important to drill down deeper into the problem so that you can really be sure you're gonna learn from it. Now, if you don't know where to start with this, you can try this with a technique called the five whys. Now, I think it's pretty self-explanatory by the title, but you basically ask yourself why five times, and at that point, you should reach the root cause of the issue. Let's do an example from my career. A few years ago, I was doing a mix for an artist. I absolutely crushed it, at least I thought so. And the day after I sent the first mix, I was promptly fired from the whole album because I went in the complete wrong direction, which absolutely caught me off guard because we had had a whole conversation about what the direction was before I started. So let's run the five whys on this. I got fired from the mix. Why? Because I missed the vibe they were going for. Why? Because I felt like I was given free reign to do my own thing to the track. Why? Because the artist said their rough mix was just some basic levels and no real mixing. Why would they say that? Because I told them that my general philosophy is to keep the artist's vision intact and to take inspiration from the rough mix. Aha. There's the issue. I said I was going to do one thing, and then I did something completely different, all because he and I had some miscommunication. Now, I could have easily just stopped at I missed the vibe and not really accepted any responsibility and just chalked it up to they didn't know what they wanted. But I would have never learned the right lesson from this mistake, which in this case is to be absolutely sure that everybody is on the same page. And I've never made the same mistake again, because once you start drilling down on your mistakes like this, you'll find that you don't have repeat issues because you've actually identified the root cause and you've actually solved the problem. This is what taking a growth mindset approach to your career looks like. You're always trying to improve. You're always trying to get better, even when it's hard. Actually, especially when it's hard, because that's when you're going to grow the most. Now, it's super easy to analyze your wins. Everybody wants to sit around a table and try to figure out why a release was a huge success or why a repeat client continues to come back. And yes, there are plenty of things to learn from analyzing our successes, but I promise you that the ROI on time spent analyzing and eliminating repeated missteps in your career is going to pay off so much more in the long run. 
Today's guest is session and touring guitarist and songwriter Adam Tressler. Adam has performed or recorded with a long list of artists, including Amy Mann, Selena Gomez, Little Nas X, Camille Cabello, Laura Huron, and plenty more. He's also played on scores for TV shows such as Modern Family, A Million Little Things, Central Park, and for films like Birds of Prey and This Is the Year. He's also amassed a collection of about 50 fretted instruments from around the world, and when he's not playing those for other people, he's writing for his own project, which is a collection of biographical songs about U.S. presidents and first ladies, so we'll definitely get into that. And so, super fun one today. Welcome to the show, Adam Tressler. What's up, man? How are you? How's it going? Doing good, Travis. Good to see you. Yeah, dude. Last time I saw you was like, man, a random engineering gig I did in the Hollywood Hills, and you walked in as the guitar player, but that was like <laughs> 10 years ago. Have you been in L.A. that long? That's right, yeah. I, I think I'm on year 12 or 13 now, so that sounds about right. That was a minute. A lot's happened yeah. since then. Yeah, you're right. Dude, I want to talk about, like, I was just cruising through your Instagram before we get into like your history and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I saw you playing Bonnie Raitt tune on a hammered dulcimer, Tom Petty on something <laughs> called a Pippa. Do you sleep or do you just stay up all night <laughs> learning new instruments? Like, where, like how, how many things are you playing now? Well, yeah, there, I think there are about 50 instruments here and like maybe like 15 of those are guitars and there's all these other things from around the world that I've kind of been collecting yeah, I'm trying to get in more like session scoring, like film scoring. So having like different textures. So like I find these cover videos are a good kind of barrier entry to me to like learn how to play these instruments, just like some, right. you know, and then have like maybe something. So I'll kind of pick one up. I'll be working on a few at a time. Like, oh, like this week I'm playing some oud, you know, and like trying to work up some song. And then after a few weeks, I'll record my little video for Instagram and then kind of put the oud back down. We'll see when it gets picked up again, you know? <laughs> That's, are you, are you picking these things up by ear? Because I know, you know, like once you play guitar or any stringed instrument, you just kind of have to figure out the tuning. But are you watching videos or just messing around? I'm watching some videos. Like I'm, I'm certainly like a guitar player that's playing these instruments. So it's not like, uh, I'm not learning all the traditional repertoire or anything. I'll watch videos to see the mechanics of what like experts, how they use the instrument. But right. I'm not moving to China to like join a PIPA <laughs> orchestra anytime soon. <laughs> That's awesome. People yeah. on YouTube can see the like uh, the army of random instruments behind you, which is epic. Yeah, right. So it's awesome, dude. That's great. So I'm I'm stoked you're doing more session work than touring these days. Is that yeah, because of the yeah. pandemic, or was that something you just moved into? I feel like it was always sort of the trajectory I imagined. You know. Um, I figured session work was kind of the stuff that I enjoyed the most and it felt to me like the most um, appropriate for me. You know, I will maybe talk about it, but I kind of dabbled in the pop touring world a bit, but just wasn't really for me. And I had to, like some reality checks, you know, that kind of <laughs> were like, oh, like maybe I'll uh, kind of step out of that hustle and kind of focus more on the one that I had been a little more interested in from the get go. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good segue. Let, let's pause there before we go off on every tangent in the world. And let's go back to kind of how we always start this show, which is how you got into music. We met at Berkeley, mm -hmm. but when did you pick up guitar for the first time and decide that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, um, when I was 10, you know, this was like the height of uh, Green Day's Dookie. And yes, I feel like I had a friend whose brother played guitar. And so I started taking guitar lessons and then after about a year, I ended up with a really great teacher who had gone to Berkeley and had like a really solid method that I really connected with. And I was with him from, you know, 11 or 12 until 18. And he really prepared me to go to college there. And over the course of that time, like I found a love for the instrument. And then it seemed just like a very natural thing. Like, oh, like this guy went to Berkeley. Like my parents had always wanted me to go to college. And then I started going to this Berkeley summer program and you know, like, this guy prepared me with how they teach. So I felt like positioned, you know, to go for it, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. When did you graduate? Did you graduate with me? 2006? 2008. 2008. Oh, okay. What'd you do when you were done? I moved to New York. Oh. There was like a, a big crew of us. You know, I had been pl started playing with a lot of singer songwriters and artists at Berkeley. And, you know, like with the Chinese bus like it was like an easy commute to so new york felt a little familiar i i always really loved la but hadn't really spent too much time out there so all my friends were moving to new york and it seemed like 
the thing to do, you know, and I'm yeah. glad I did it, but it was just for three years, kind of long enough to like wet the beak, like, you know, lived in a really grimy apartment with my friends and had a good time. <laughs> and then kind of when the opportunity came to move West, I, I did, you know. That's awesome. For anybody listening, there was this Chinatown bus that was like, it was cheap, right? It was like 20 bucks. Yeah, if that. Yeah, yeah, Boston to New York. But I feel like you just got dropped off on like a random street corner. It was always a little sketch. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a wild card. <laughs> but you, for a college kid, you could get to New York and that was that was the key. Yeah, yeah. So get there and back. That's awesome. When you were finishing Berkeley, were you just a performance major? Yeah, I was. So playing guitar professionally was always the goal. Yeah. What were some of the first things you did? Because there's so many people out there that like they want to professionally play their instrument. Like, mm-hmm. what did you think at that time was the the best choice of how to start besides moving to New York, obviously? I mean, I feel like I have always had a, a pretty pragmatic approach to doing this. So like, I feel like when I had gotten to Berkeley, like, you know, they have this rating system and, you know, like I, oh, I knew yeah. that like sight reading was like a valued thing in this rating system and that that would potentially be the sort of like professional skill. Like I didn't ever picture myself like being just like the guy in a band, you know, or like kind of putting all my eggs in that one basket. So like, it's always been about like trying to be as diverse musically, but then just like with the opportunities that are coming to be doing as many different things as possible. So like when I moved to New York, there were five or six bands that I was already in that were playing and, you know, we weren't like making a lot of money, but I felt like I was immediately out there performing and doing the thing, but there wasn't like too much of a recording scene, like for me in New York, and I think maybe in general in New York, especially for someone in their early 20s, you know, you have to prove yourself like, yeah, you're not just going to get hired to, to play on any of these records, you know, so felt like I would just play live and then, you know, answer the phone when it rings and see what happens. <laughs> that that rating system, man, I was like, yeah. uh, I was at the bottom of that thing. But so, okay, you knew that you kind of wanted to be like a team player then like you never wanted mm-hmm. to be like the shredding front man long right. 80s metal band right and first of all i have to say that you may be one of the only guitar players that i've talked to in a long time that can read music i don't know what it is about <laughs> guitar players they're like what yeah. read music fuck that yeah oh yeah so yeah so okay so you kind of had an idea of the things that would set you up for doing what you wanted because most people would not read learn to read music even at berkeley yeah i think there was something about about even that teacher that I had growing up, like just kind of like getting your craft together, you know, and then I wanted to do well at Berkeley. Like I, I enjoy like an infrastructure that has like, like I'm a uh, student, you know, so I like right I, I, to do well at Berkeley, like it kind of made sense to do the things that Berkeley values, you know, so like getting my reading together just seemed like a pretty obvious way for me to get into classes I wanted to get into or just like be able to do those other things at college that I was trying to do because I wasn't really gigging, you know, it's just like, if I can get into the, these special groups that are at school or like, you know, it seemed like that was the way that I was going right. to try to do it. That's cool. That's awesome. Did you get to do any recording session work in New York before you left or did that all start over here? It was mostly just, you know, the bands that I was in would be doing things or like right. maybe a handful of demo sessions, but Certainly nothing like that's on my resume now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. That's awesome. So what brought you to LA? What made you want to make that move? Well, like I was saying, always maybe imagined it happening. And it was just a question of like how to facilitate that. And so when I moved to New York, um, I had started writing songs, like kind of lyrics. And I'd always, you know, come up with guitar tunes. And then one of the singers that I was, working with i wrote a, an album of songs for her and then she recorded the album like very well and then so then i had this really great like kind of songwriting reel basically and on on that i fell into a publishing deal oh nice with bmg so like uh this was all happening in la but there was like this album had gotten to this guy who's signing people to this publishing company so like i went out and i met this guy and he in particular, he liked this one song I had written. And basically on the strength of that song, he thought he was going to make something happen with it that didn't pan out. But um, he signed me to this deal. And then I was able to kind of use the advance money 
to move. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Are you still in that deal? Yeah, but it's like kind of, uh, I don't think for long. No, okay. That guy left the company soon after I got out West. So like when I first got to LA, I was kind of, oh, I guess I'm like a songwriter now. Like we'll see like what kind of sessions that they'll put me in or these co-writes or kind of where this could lead, you know? And then right. I kind of like went through the motions of that a bit, but um, you know, I, I, maybe I just, this guy kind of forgot about me a little bit or, you know, he, this one opportunity that he had didn't pan out and he was like, Oh, like not too much to do with this guy anymore. So like, I kind of pursued that a little bit, but always kind of knew that the more immediate, like someone needs a guitar part for a song, like they call you, you know, you get paid right then, or, you know, hopefully right then. And then, uh, songwriting is such a longer game. And then so long. Yeah. I mean, I've had some like marginal success there, but, um, kind of saw the, the structure of the game and how like difficult it was for these people. Like if you don't have a single, you know, like good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It can be, uh, it can take forever mm-hmm. for something to like to stick. So I didn't, I didn't realize that you did some of that. Were you in those like blind date songwriting sessions where it's like, Hey, meet for five minutes and write a hit. Did you do some of that when you got out here? Some I did. Yeah, I did some of that. I feel like this guy that signed me knew I was more of like a singer songwriter type. So they were putting me with other singer songwriters. Okay. And then like I did end up getting into that pop world, like through a gig I had on guitar. The artist was working a lot with this songwriter that, you know, I became close with him and then he started bringing me in. So that was like I had two uh, like Demi Lovato cuts with these guys. And that was kind of the only time that I've had like a big placement gotcha pop placement yeah um yeah but yeah like it, it was fun working with those guys and like i valued that time and was grateful for those opportunities but i feel like the guitar always just seemed like a more like familiar way for me to be making a living at this yeah well here's a, here's a question and you know you can answer this in whatever politically correct manner you'd, you'd like to answer it i feel like a lot of people they'll jump on a pub deal like i feel like a lot of younger artists will like rush to it because it'll, you know, pay their rent for six months or help them move like you did. Mm-hmm. And then I think they don't realize how attached they are to like one A&R guy mm-hmm. or girl and how that person can just disappear. Like looking back, would you re-sign that deal or would you approach it differently or you, did it pan out enough for you? And I mean, you don't have to like badmouth yeah. the guy. I'm just curious what your experiences are. Yeah, I think for me, it was all about being able to facilitate that move. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, like I had, of course, you know, these people kind of put these big dreams in your head, but to me, it always seemed like something I kind of like fell into and it was never going to be like, like maybe it would have been in some alternate world, but like it, I didn't anticipate it becoming like the job. And then once things started to kind of, I wasn't getting too much support from these people, like I was like, oh, at least I I have this other thing that I can do. And that's the thing I always kind of figured I was going to do. And this had been this kind of detour that was welcome, you know? So I probably would have done it. It was exciting. Like, but I don't think that I would like encourage necessarily like anyone to just jump into one of those things. Cause I did kind of fall into that scenario you're talking about. Like this guy soon after he signed me, he left the company. Then I kind of got passed between these few people and like, you know, you meet with these people they don't really know what to do with you. Yeah. And I wasn't like gung ho about this anyway, you know, like I needed collaborators. Like I wasn't going to just give them that next like Demi Lovato song. Like they needed to put me in a room so I could, you know, I was still basically playing guitar, just coming to coming up with riffs and form stuff, you know? So. Yeah. Cause I did so many sessions with, with songwriters, you know, for years and years and years. And I definitely saw like a lot of, younger writers because it would always be the younger newer signings that i would do the sessions with because they wouldn't have like their home studio because they didn't mm-hmm. have their kitty perry mm-hmm. cut or whatever <laughs> and so they'd be always always the ones coming through and i i feel like generally there was a mixed opinion about like who they were working with or whether they were happy they signed the deal even though like they got it because they had two percent of i don't know Nicki minaj track or something like that because they were in the room right and then you kind of get lost in the fray unless you're one of those people that's like delivering song and song and song and hit, hit, hit. I don't know. I think a lot of people think that a publishing deal is going to just put them in the rooms that they imagine they're going to be in. And that's just not what I saw. And it sounds like that's your experience too. 
Yeah, definitely. And like I remember understanding that because like I was an unproven writer, like sure I had, you know, they assigned me or whatever, but um yeah. Once I got these demo Lovato cuts, which was like maybe six years into my deal, and it was through, you know, an opportunity that I had fully manifested, you know, like they had nothing to do with these people. Exactly. And then I remember meeting with them, like hoping to kind of look, I did it myself. Like maybe now like you guys can like use that to help me get more sessions like this, you know, if, if this is going to work, you know, and then, yeah, sure. We'll do that. And then it just kind of like, and I get it, you know, it's like, if like a lot of the bigger writers only want to write with bigger writers and the other bigger writers. Yeah. 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 There was a funny thing when I was working with songwriters, you could always tell like who was more excited to write with who. <laughs> right. Right. Like this, some people would be like, okay, yeah, I'm working with this guy. And the other guy would be like, I'm working with this guy. Right. Right. I remember like this one writer that I worked on a lot of this music with was so impressive to me, like how he could just like be coming like a top liner, you know, just really coming up with oh, yeah. brilliant melodies, like great lyrics just quickly. And I, I could just tell that like, oh, like that's not, me like i like i'm lucky to be here like that they needed like a guitar riff to write to you know but it wasn't going to be yeah that same trajectory for me i don't think yeah it's pretty impressive some of those really talented writers how fast they can come up with mm-hmm. something that's really good yeah you know and, and then they'll tweak it like as they go but you're just like whoa uh, anyway, so we've been talking about publishing deals for like five, <laughs> 10 minutes. So for our audience, publishing deal, 50-50, flip a coin, <laughs> make make the decision for yourself. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I did want to ask you a question as a guitar player, and it kind of sounds like it plays into some of your songwriting experience. Do you ever feel like you're in sessions coming up with parts that you believe are part of the songwriting process? Or sometimes as a player, do you just come up with parts understanding that you're not going to be quote a songwriter on that track did did i phrase that question properly yeah totally like and i feel like it really comes down to like what they've called you for right you know like like on these uh two demi lovato songs like one of them was just like fully a, a riff that i played when i first plugged in in the studio that day like the other one was like oh like we have we think we like these two chords but we need something to kind of like a loop basically that we can built this song around, you know, so they called me both those times, like, as a writer, I I find like, it is a bit of a blurry line a lot of times, especially with pop music where it is, you know, we're just writing like these same progressions, like, over and over again. And then like, if my guitar riff is the thing that makes your one to five progression, like pop, then there's some part of me that feels like I should, that should be like valued in that way. But I feel like if you don't, it's just so hard to get it after the fact, you know, cause you're then like fighting up against like the publishing world, you know? And, and if you don't, God help you, if you haven't set it up before, like the song comes out, you know, then you're like, it's just definitely not, it's happening, definitely not happening then, you know, like I, or you're yeah. going to spend all your way too much resource and energy, like trying to rectify that. Yeah. Do you have any advice to like younger players on like how to handle that situation? Like where you might feel like you are a songwriter versus a player? Do you kind of have to read the room or it's tricky? Yeah. I mean, I'm such a non-confrontational person that like, I feel like I would say, just try to put that out there as soon as you can. Like if it's not in the room of the session, if that's going to feel awkward for you, then like maybe like that night or the next morning you you reach out to those writers and just make sure that like, you know, they're already doing the mental calculations on splits and, you know, like, you know, what could happen with this down the line. So you just want to make sure that no one's surprised by your request and you can have a conversation there. You're not going to like spring this on them. Like when the song's like, you know, nobody cares unless the song's something's happening with it. And like we were just saying, like by then it's too late, you know? So like even, yeah, 
before the song kind of goes beyond the the writing, you know, to try to get the stand up for yourself, which I've not I'm not very yeah. good at, but I would encourage others <laughs> to to do it. <laughs> well, it's so hard because you know it's it feels like a big industry to people that are like trying to get into it, mm-hmm. but it's really small. I mean, you know, like just the fact that we ran into each other at some random artist's house in the hills tells mm-hmm. you how like how small it is, you know. So yeah, there is a there is such a delicate line of like kind of advocating for yourself and being the prick that nobody wants to work with. Be like, well, don't call, you know, so-and-so. He always wants 20% just for sitting there and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Totally. And uh, yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, I will say that like if I go in and they are, okay, we have these two chords and we just need the guitar riff, like I wouldn't necessarily think that even if I do come up with that signature melody or like if they're not pulling like melodic hooks from it or like if it's not becoming then part of the production like i understand that they're maybe just calling me as a guitar player you know and yeah totally you don't certainly like don't feel like entitled to it you know yeah unless like they're conceiving the song when you're in the room then like obviously that's a big difference that's what i was going to say i feel like a, a pretty clear defining line is if you're in the room when the concept is coming together verse coming into the room later in the day to throw down an overdub because they have they're like they need somebody to help them get an idea right. out is like very different totally. things and i think like producers probably like have learned this lesson you know like back in the day obviously like, the the producer was like functioning more as like a some kind of band leader like at the board and and then after decades of them like coming up with the beat that become it's like the producer is now like such a creative job you know it's not as passive as i think it probably was back oh yeah it's in the day when you needed other musicians to be making those sounds it's become the multi-instrumentalist job yeah it's like unless you, if you you're not the producer unless you can put the whole track together and you know yeah. in, in two hours which is crazy i mean I, I get it but it's very different from the way that it was it's nuts mm-hmm. but there's so many things you can pull from that old school era like just understanding like when to bring other players in, understanding how to interact with those players. Cause a good, like a Quincy Jones or something like that is going to solve the problem that you and I are talking about before Mm -hmm. it even comes up. He's going to be like, Hey, this person needs to get a percentage because they're contributing or this person's here to play guitar and we just need to sing him something, you know? Yeah. Right. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know. It's, I, I like it when I work with a producer that's got some of that old school, but then they can also just like grab every instrument in the room and you're like, wow, you're, you're on it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You understand why they are where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk touring for a second. When did you land your first tour where you were just like clearly the side man and not a, a band member? I feel like when I moved to LA, mm. you know, I was, I connected with, I was lucky, you know, the people I had graduated from Berkeley three years before this. So a lot of my friends had moved to California and had put in three years of kind of like grunt work really. So that when I show up, like there's at least like, you know, there's stuff to do. Like there was people that I knew that were putting together bands for, you know, it was like YouTube stars. So like, I feel like the first, like, you know, that was the time like 2013 or something like that. I got, I was in a band with some YouTube star and then we like did like a (laughs) three month tour opening for a pop person. And that was kind of my first bus, you know, the first like time, really seeing a lot of these places and like kind of just being paid like a weekly rate instead of some sort of like back East, like we're going to drive to DC to do this gig. And like, well, maybe everyone gets like a hundred bucks, you know, but you get a free trip to DC or something. Right. That's amazing. So do you have any advice for people that, that want to get on that touring train, whether it be how to be a good band member or how to get noticed in an audition? Like, are there things that you did that helped you or hurt you? Anything that you can help people out with? I mean, it seems that the newest crop of people are, there's so much more like media savvy. I know that like, um, Mm. like having like, you know, your Instagram page is basically your resume, you know? So like, like you have to show yourself doing your thing because if your Instagram is just like artistic photographs of sunsets or something like that like employers will check that out like they're, they're going to send like five instagram accounts to the managers or the artists and they're going to a lot oh, of wow. times choose from that you know it's it's not so much 
the audition anymore. You know, you just have to be a good hang, you know, like it's really like, yeah, like being like, I was lucky the people I was reconnecting with that were putting me on these gigs were people I was friends with and people that I just knew socially. I never was the guy that was like, I never got like a nail to a cattle call audition, you know, like to me, it always had to be like paired with this guy is cool. Like this guy is not oh, going to okay. cause any problems, like professional, you know, instead of like blowing everyone away necessarily when I walk into the audition. Cause I, I know that like I lack the certain like rock star stage presence, you know, and that was ultimately kind of one of the main factors of me not pursuing that world more than I did. You know, like I kind of, we, we could talk about it. Like I got like, I kind of, um, my biggest one was I joined Selena Gomez's band. This was a uh, 2016. Yeah. Cause I knew and was friends with the musical director and they needed somebody. There was no audition, you know, it was just kind of like they called me and then I did it for a while. And then I thought I was going to be doing this full 16 month world tour. I had gotten the spreadsheet with the routing and I thought like, Oh, rehearsals are going to start in three months. Rehearsals are going to start in two months. Rehearsals are going to start in a month. Like I, I should probably be hearing something about like where to go or what the music is. And then I found out that like, basically they had like, they'd replaced me in this band, you know? Oh my God. And nobody said anything. No one said anything until it was already done. And, uh, and it was primarily because that of like the kind of stage presence, which I understand, like the guy that they hired, like definitely was the right choice if that was the, the main concern, you know? Right. But I, I kind of took that as a bit of a sign that like, you know, maybe I'm not the guy that's going to be succeeding at that job. And yeah, maybe I'll just, you know, shift my focus to where I'm in the room with a, an engineer and a producer, you know, I'm not required to smile or remember dance moves or the kind of the parts of the job that never really like were that comfortable for me, you know? Right. Was it Selena Gomez that you did one of the late nights with? Did I see you on, on like one of those shows? Yeah. I, my last gig was Saturday Night Live. With, with oh, her. sick. Yeah. So I feel like I went out. Yeah. If you're going to go out, go out that yeah. way, right? <laughs> yeah. Playing, playing yeah. SNL. Yeah. You know, something you said that I hadn't thought about is the social media thing. Cause it, you know, like I know it's so big when like brands are looking for people or even movies are looking for actors. Do you think a, like the follower count is coming into play when you're putting a band together for like one of these newer artists? Have you heard anybody being like, oh yeah, get this person. They're great on the internet. I mean, I'm sure it can be a factor, you know, but I, I somebody don't think somewhere it, is talking about it. Yeah. I don't think it's, at least the the musical directors that I am friends with don't value it to that degree because that that stuff okay. can also you can also like kind of game that system a little oh, yeah. bit like uh, and you know it's people want to see you playing with other musicians too I, I think like I do worry that some of the like self recording like solo guitar focused like social media stuff like isn't necessarily the best example of how you're going to play in eighth notes in a band, you know? So you, I feel like you want to have all kinds of stuff up there, like videos of you playing with a band and like, you know, whatever you can, but yeah, it does matter. Certainly. Yeah. Well, it's something else that you, you mentioned and it, you've mentioned it kind of passed over it a couple of times is it sounds like your network from Berkeley and from New York and since you've come out here is really like the core of what your career is built on. Certainly. Is, is your relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you find that anywhere. I mean, like most of my work now is it's totally freelance, you know? Um, so, and you just kind of build up a network of people that are calling you over years, you know, and they might each only individually call you like once a year or something like that. But, you know, if you make your good impression and they value you, then, you have enough, you build up enough of those over time that to keep yourself busy, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah totally. It's a uh, get the revolving door of regular clients. You got yeah. 300 people that call you once a year, then <laughs> yeah, right. you're probably Sitting overworking pretty. yourself. Yeah. But, totally. Dude, let's talk uh, session musicians and, and how you broke into that. Cause I worked at Capitol for a long time and it was lots of like the old school session musicians like right. George Deering's, Dean Parks and all, all those players. And so like when I think session musician, I'm always thinking like 
these people that have been playing for like 30, 40 years, they're playing on Steely Dan records and shit like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you squeeze your way into that circle, like it, piece by piece? Because I know now you're doing like film scores and the film scores are, are the ones where you really see those old school guys. Totally. So you've, you've really kind of pushed your way politely, well, not pushing, but <laughs> you've gotten in the door, which I think is awesome. How did you go about it? I mean, it's the same kind of thing we were just talking about. Like, I mean, it, it's very slowly you push through the door, I suppose, you know, is the answer. But it's like creaking uh, open. Yeah. 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 One foot, one like toehold in like, hey, I'm still here. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it started with I was doing more like record dates, you know, and then I mean, a lot of it is the people that I knew that were film scorers that I moved out here. You know, those first few years they're pursuing their career, they're not really in a position to hire anybody. But, you know, you maintain those relationships just naturally because you're friends. Then like four or five years later, when they are in a position to call people, like they might call you instead of calling George Deering because they know you want to do that. Like they want there's, you know, that rising tide thing is like so true. Totally, totally true. The film stuff is it's really um, there's just a few companies that really do it, you know. So like how do you get to know these people, these companies like when they're they're calling these same players over and over again. And yeah. I mean, for me, it was like uh, just playing original music with an artist who's like had a, a family connection at one of these companies. So then like I kind of met this, the family connection, like in a very seemingly like organic way. And then they saw me play a few times. Maybe they, they liked my personality enough to like give me a chance to do some of that work. Yeah. And I feel like I'm still kind of in that category of like, they'll occasionally give me a a chance to do that sort of work. You know, it's not like, it's still going to go to these other people before it comes to me a lot of times, but um, people retire, like people are busy. So like, you kind of just hope that you position yourself in a way that you're able to be there when they need it, you know? And that was another thing, like not going too into the touring world is that I knew that my favorite opportunities were the ones that were coming when I was in town, like a fun record date or some local thing that was interesting. Yeah. When you're on the road and you get those calls, like I was really like, it hurt to have to say no to any of that sort of work because those people were only calling me once every four months. And then if I say no that time, like who knows, like if they'll even think of me the next time, if, if you're known as somebody that's always on tour or like if that's the impression that you're giving out. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I feel like uh, it was all like a natural connection through friends. Yeah. Well, that's something that I've, I've seen so many people have to fight with, like where you gain traction as a producer or a songwriter or something. And then you got to go back on the road with the band that you're in or mm-hmm. or got to go do front of house or something. And all of a sudden, like you have to say no for like six months. Right. And yeah, it's it can be tough. I wanted to clarify for myself and the audience, you said companies, are you talking about contractors that are putting bands together for shows and, and, t- and film? Yeah, the, like there's a few, uh, yeah, the music contracting companies are the ones that Got it. do the big stuff. You know, like a lot of what I'm doing is more TV or like indie films, you know, and where like the composer is maybe making those calls themselves. But, you know, at a certain point, like they hired these contractor companies to put together an orchestra or right you know like the vibe of this one's going to be like guitars and things like that so then they'll find maybe an individual for them i never thought of the contractors as being companies but they probably are because they're putting together like orchestras what was that one guy that did everything name one guy that does everything peter rotter that's it yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah yeah he was always doing everything at capital yeah yeah okay that makes sense. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're doing a lot of gigs. You, you would be a company, but yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I never made that connection. Mm-hmm. They were just like individual people. Well, we're kind of like touching on union stuff. And I wanted to ask you about union stuff as a musician. Do you think there's a point when a musician should join the union when they're in a city like New York or LA? Should they do it in the beginning, even when they're not doing TV shows and, and record dates? Or should they wait? I would say, like, all due respect, to the union like they they haven't like made themselves necessary and they do a lot of valuable like with the film work certainly like they have a more of a a foothold in making sure the musicians like are taken care of with you know all their the rules that are, that 
people respect, you know, but like most of the work that I'm doing is not union. And like even a lot of the the early TV shows, um, like the first year they run, like a lot of times they're not union. So I think it can be valuable maybe as like a a social world, maybe that like you're able to, there's people that are there that have experience that you could talk to and meet that you might not otherwise find those chances for, but like, I'm still not a member of the oh, you're LA. Not? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I oh. pay my dues when they come up, but like, I still haven't for whatever reason, you know, I've just kind of avoided the, the final step. Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely run into a lot of situations in my time where like a movie that I worked on years and years and years ago with this guy, they did like a toy based on, you know, like a little microphone where you would sing along, but we had to take the mixes and redo the mixes for the toy because the union wanted too much money. Mm for the toy, because it was a full orchestra in this. Mm. So we had to mute the full orchestra and bring in the fake orchestra again, just for the toy. And then it's like, I feel like there's a fine balance between defending the musician's rights and making sure they're getting paid and then potentially pushing the gig to like the UK or to Europe or, or whatever sure. it is. And I'm obviously, I'm talking more of an orchestra thing, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I That's kind of the way most people about the musicians union are they're kind of like yeah it helped sometimes and not other times <laughs> and i'm sure like like maybe it's just the the calls that i'm getting you know versus if you were like a trombone player or something you know like you're just naturally going to be more of like an ensemble team player type thing yeah. like um the guitar not so much and a lot of composers play guitar themselves or you know so it's, it's true. you know you got to find the ones that play piano you could buddy buddy with us yeah yeah before we kind of leave the the session world you know i always have to ask for the top tip of everything right is there like one or two tips that you could give to people that are about to start doing some sessions maybe or or that's what they want to do obviously reading music is probably towards the top i would imagine yeah i mean reading music like i think uh rhythm guitar you know like most of what you're going to be doing is rhythm guitar and like learning to layer simple parts. Like I never felt like too oppressed by the like jazz knowledge that I had kind of picked up, you know, like, but I think some people maybe want to overexpress the, their musicality, you know? So I find that like, if you have good tone and good time and like can make a few layers of yourself, like if you can double yourself, you know, it's all things that just, make it faster yeah. for the engineer. And, and, you know, if you're able to do the job in an hour that they might have to spend like an hour and a half or two hours trying to like, or maybe an hour, you have to spend an hour later fixing it. So that the whole job is to prevent that effort, you know? So like trying to layer yourself and like, I mean, I've picked up a lot of these other instruments and just kind of having like an ear for texture, you know? Yeah. Things that make things stand out because they don't probably need you to play something impressive, you know, but they want to sound good and be in time, you know? Yeah. What about like, uh, the, like tone or, you know, pedal work and stuff like that? Cause I feel like, you know, like you're, you're talking about a lot of these parts are, are simple. Do you get to kind of shape the texture to fit things into the piece or the track more often? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like, I love making the special effects and using pedals to create, you know, any kind of atmosphere. So you can kind of get it in there, but, you know, especially if a composer sends me an episode's worth of cues to record, like they pretty much have it mapped out there. Like I'm just trying to make that MIDI like sound like the real thing, you know? So like, and not getting too creative and, you know, if I'm doing a remotely, I want to avoid the back and forth. So like, I feel like I've always kind of enjoyed like simple, like clean guitar parts. Yeah. And then if you or the composer wants to like mess with it later, then like let you guys do that instead of trying to assert that myself. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of what I think, like it might sound like best eventually. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about remote sessions so I'm glad you brought that up. What kind of stuff do you send back? Do you send like, I send a DI and an amp or I send just my microphone or I have a couple options. Do you kind of give people more stuff than they need or do you find it better to like shrink it down to like, this is the guitar part? It kind of depends, but I feel like uh, it ends up being like 
if it's a client I've worked with a lot, then you know what they want. So maybe you're, yeah. you kind of pair back what you send them because it's too much. If you just send them, like, you don't want to seem like you're not confident in what you're sending, you know? So like, here's the guitar part. Like if it's wrong, like I'll redo it today, you know, but like, I'm not going to send like, here's every pass I did on the guitar. Like, I think like the verse on this one was better. So like, maybe you want to comp it. It just like, you don't want to make more work for yeah anyone. So I feel like I send more if I am less clear on what they want, but I'm more inclined to send like extra kinds of parts versus like different tones with the same part or whatever else, you know, like it's more like, Oh, like I decided to do some swells cause I thought maybe it like kind of adding more to it without sending like redundant stuff. Right. Do you ever record a DI on your side in case they want a different tone or maybe you're even in the box are you using amps or are you in, uh, in the computer? I'm in the box. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I use like a, amp sim like effects box that i've used nice. for a few years um so like often i'll send a dry one i i use a plug-in reverb primarily so like okay. i'll send that dry but if it has like tremolo on it or like some other even distortion i'll normally just kind of send it with it or i'll ask ahead of time if they want the di like i can do that but i feel like most people they want it to sound pretty good when they pull it up they don't want to have to like play with an amp sim on their own end like maybe they'll add extra distortion or eq it some way compress it i don't really i'm not a very good engineer so like i i find that i send what to me seems like a good capture of the audio and then especially acoustic instruments like i'm not really sending them with anything i record like a tiny bit of compression and then just like let them do their thing on it yeah Let's do some gear talk. What's uh, Desert Island guitar for you? Like, if you could only have one, I use basically the same electric guitar, like exclusively. Oh, okay. Like, especially live stuff. I have this black Telecaster that I got from Fender for that SNL gig, so it was kind of like my parting <laughs> gift. There you go. I use that on every gig. I don't bring multiple guitars, even on my current touring gig. I have like one as a backup if I break a string, but I'll play the whole set. Um, the same guitar. Nice. That's a black Telecaster that I love. I have like a Martin acoustic that is probably my favorite guitar for recording and just being at home and writing. Awesome. Yeah. What have you found microphone for your acoustic guitar for like the kid that wants to record guitar at home? Like, do you have any tricks as a musician? Cause like an engineer thinks about it very differently. Like I'm going to put the mic here and I'm going to use the most expensive thing I can have. How do you like to get acoustic guitar sounds as an acoustic guitar player? You know, because I'm I'm not much of an engineer and I also don't really care too much about gear. Like I feel like generally I just I've never been interested, like even in guitars, like I don't know about wood or pickups or electronics. Like I, <laughs> I like so it. basically like when I moved to LA, this is one of those things I got a phone call like asking if I had the capability to record remotely. And I didn't. I had I don't know what I had, like probably nothing really. And then I said yes. And then I called a friend of mine who had recently another guitar player who had bought kind of like one good chain. Like he bought like a good preamp, a good compressor and a microphone. And I asked yeah. him what he bought. Cause I know he had done a lot of research and then I just bought the exact same <laughs> stuff, which is what I use pretty much exclusively for like eight or nine years. And then recently I, I changed like the microphone I use on acoustic guitars, but otherwise it's still like the same you know, I bought like a lunchbox, um, yep. just like some API gear and just like kind of, that's just been it, you know, and I don't really have a lot of like curiosity, you know, for better or worse. Right. It seems to be working fine and I, I'm happy with it. Like, so I just don't change it. Well, it's, you know, it is particularly in guitar, it's in the fingers. Like when sure. you play guitar, it sounds like you. When my buddy plays a guitar, it sounds like him. And then I give him another guitar, it still sounds like him. Like it doesn't really matter. Like if it's the right part and it's a good performance. Sure. I mean, an SM57 sounds great totally. on acoustic guitar, especially for like a strumming thing. Like totally. I've done that a million times. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, you can't be like intimidated by what other people are using. You know, like like it's just you're you're trying to capture the sound and like you realize that like a lot of really top people are using very rudimentary gear you know and i feel like once oh, yeah. that once that lesson started to dawn on me i felt like 
more secure in what I was doing because even if it doesn't sound like radio ready when I record it, like someone like you is going to take it and like do something that I can't really imagine and make it that way, you know? <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a session drummer who had a studio. I don't know if he still has the same one. We'll leave his name out. Uh, cause I'm gonna throw him under the bus, but he did a bunch of drum stuff, you know, and it would be like, send him the files and he'd send you the files back. And there was a couple of times where we went down just for fun to just like record with him. Mm-hmm. And so I was engineering. I mean, everything was like set up and, uh, you know, there's like the knee for kick and snare and knee for this. And there's like four or five knees. And I'm like, I was like, where are the, where's the hi-hat and the toms and stuff? And he's like, it's under the desk. And like, I look under the desk and there's like a Mackie mixer, like shoved in the back. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. But whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh, there was a, um, an interesting acoustic guitar placement. And I, I can't take any credit for this because I saw it uh, when I was an assistant at Capitol. It was a, T-Bone Burnett session, probably with Mike Prasante engineering, but they wanted it to be like this really casual, like open space that people could like write in. And I don't know if they do this all the time or they, if they did it because of, you know, what they wanted, but they came over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, if you're strumming guitar like this, the mic comes in like here and it kind of like looks down at the, at the strings, like where you would be strumming. This is a great opportunity for anybody listening to watch the YouTube video. <laughs> it sounds like as a guitar player, because I play guitar myself, barely compared to you, it sounds so natural. You should try it sometime because you'll, yeah. you'll be like, oh shit, this is what my guitar sounds like to me because that's where the mic is. Yeah, that's, I was thinking that's really an interesting thought, you know, like I wouldn't, it's yeah. like, you know, I'm primarily recording like one mic here, sometimes like two. So it, I don't tend to like get too experimental. Like, uh, I just kind of, I've seen enough engineers put the microphone on the guitar that you kind of just put it there, you know, and there we're, we're exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting. You should, you should check it out. It, uh, you can't breathe though. I think actually now yeah, I think sure. about it, I think it was so that everybody could sing. I bet that's why they put it there. Anyway, right. it doesn't matter, but it is a cool sound. It is a cool sound. I bet. But you can experiment with it on your next president's record, which we can talk about. <laughs> yeah. But we got to talk about your music before we go. Sure. So are you, you must be a history buff if you're writing songs about past presidents. Yeah. Um, when I was in Boston for college, I got a library card and wasn't too much of a reader prior to that, but like really just kind of became a reader like while I was in college. And I also have a bit of like a methodical spirit. And I thought like maybe a way for me to learn like a cursory American history would be to read a biography of every president in order. And, uh, there was a series of books that had like been out that had all of the presidents. So I, I mostly did those and they were all pretty short. So I, like, I just kind of got into learning about the presidents in particular. It's interesting. So then like, as I was writing, starting to write songs, like at one point I just kind of wrote a song about William Henry Harrison, who had a very short presidency. And I was like, Oh, this guy was president for 31 days. Like, I should write like a short song about his whole life, you know? And then I liked the song and it kind of came easy. Just like, instead of like going through a diary, looking for your feelings, like you're going through a history book, looking for like some sort of interesting fact that you can somehow. So I would like, you know, I take notes when I read these books and then look at my notes afterwards as if it's a diary and kind of like, Oh, what can I like shape out of. It's interesting about it. That's awesome. And then, you know, it's one of those things like once you start doing something that's pretty niche, like it's pretty easy to stay there. Like people like, <laughs> oh, like this guy knows about presidents. So like, we'll talk to him about that. Or, you know, once I put out one album, I was like, oh, like that was fun. Like I'll do another one. So I'm like, now I'm working on the fourth one of these albums now. And just kind of maybe it's easier than tapping into my own emotional uh whatever's going on, you know, just to be like, oh, I can (laughs) sing about like Martin Van Buren and no one's really going to tell me I'm wrong or, you know, like they maybe will learn something about Martin Van Buren. That's amazing. Have you ever thought if you write a song about every president, are you ever afraid you're going to have to wait like four years for new material? Kind of a dad joke, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. Um, I 
mostly write about people that are dead already. Like I feel like I've only written about one living person and most of the ones even that I've written about are uh, like the first album was called Lesser Known Presidents. So I feel like I've always liked talking about underappreciated ones that no one really knows about. Yeah. I feel like you're writing a song about like George Washington. It's like hard not to feel like a little like just like a, a laudatory or, you know, like this guy was so great. Like, it's more like, let me talk about like Martin Van Buren's nicknames or like something else. that's like a little narrower. Right. And I did the first ladies. So it's like, Oh, like I can, these are people that maybe if you know anything, maybe you've heard their name or something like that. But if you listen to one of these songs, they are factually correct. It's not like schoolhouse rock. It's like pretty earnestly produced music. Right. But it is like inherently like, a little ridiculous and i am okay with that i accept it that's awesome and i i, I love it. it's and it's under your name right if people yeah, want to go yeah. okay mm-hmm. yeah so there i'll put a link in the show notes to that yeah. but i i think it's cool everybody needs their thing you know it's like you need a outlet i mean this podcast has become an outlet for me sure to do something that isn't directly related to what i do every day although this is directly related to what i do every day you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah it's like you just need the thing that's for fun, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah, it's because, man, when you're like in this industry can really, it can wear you out, you know? I, I'm sure you've felt that way. Totally. And I think too that um, because this music's so niche, like I've, I've never, I've always liked writing the songs. I love producing these records and doing it, but I never really have like too much of a, an ambition. Like I never thought that I was going to tour on my own music which I did once because I was like playing guitar with somebody that needed an opener, but like, I'm not like a going to spend money, like promoting this music really. Like I, it's more, it's, it's totally like my own thing. And like, I love when people listen to it or have a, a reaction to it, but there's really like zero expectation for it. And I think like having such a niche kind of makes that even like a little easier because if I was right. writing pop music and no one was listening, then like, Oh man, I'm really like, not doing something right here, maybe, but like if I'm writing songs about like William McKinley, then like <laughs> it's kind of justifiable that maybe it's not, you're not going to hear it on the radio or it's not getting placed like on Grey's Anatomy or something like that. Totally, totally. Anyway, I, I, I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. There's one more question that I love to throw at people that went to music school and, you know, maybe you have an opinion. Obviously, it sounds like your experience going to music school was super influential. It sounds like your whole network was based on it. It sounds like you like to learn that way as well. You're like, it sounds like you're more of a traditional learner. Sure. Do you think music school plays the same role now that it did almost 20 years ago when you and I went? Yeah, I mean, because we're talking about significantly more expensive. Sure. I mean, it's a different landscape. Do you, would you do it again if you started over? I mean, because I've had people, you know, that are considering Berkeley ask me that and I think, like you were just saying, like my whole social and like career network was based on the people that I met when I was there. And I think like Berkeley, um, for whatever it is, like does draw in people that like, if you make natural connections to these people, like it's going to benefit you down the line. Like you're not like, like I'm not a networker. Like I wouldn't be able to like go to a mixer and like make a genuine connection with these people. But because, you know, we went to college together and it's like these people are doing all kinds of work yeah it's just a natural like network for you to tap into that i think there is still a lot of value in that you know but i don't know if it's like as i don't know i mean it, people are still going you know like it's still gonna draw like <laughs> berkeley's still gonna draw those people to it and then they're gonna spread out and do their thing you know and if you maintain those like just genuine friendships with these people it's not like a a forced industry connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree on the network thing. Cause I mean, it's so many people that I knew when I moved to LA, you and I is so many people I run into that I haven't seen in like 10 years even. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, we were at school together or whatever. I mean, and in like from a, from an engineering side, like it made sense to have access to the equipment and to like learn that way and have hands on. Sure. But yeah, the network is, I would say nearly invaluable. I don't know. I, I've, I've had these thoughts about college a lot since I have a daughter now. And I talked about this on another episode mm-hmm. a few months ago. And it's like, would I encourage her to go to like a school that is, you know, tapping into as expensive as some of these, these places are? And you're like, 
it's it's what you put in and the, the way mm-hmm. you were describing your berkeley experience you kind of it sounded to me like you knew what you wanted to get out of it definitely and so you put in the effort in the places that would give you that and i think a lot of people when they go to like an art school or like film school or something they're just kind of there because they're a guitar player or they like to do camera and i don't i don't think it pans out very well on the, on the backside of that price tag if that's your approach to it totally yeah i mean like there were it seemed like there were plenty of people that maybe they're like my parents like they wanted me to go to college and this was like the college that oh like i'm a guitar player so like i want to go to guitar college but then you get there and then it's like if you're not interested in the learning of it and you just want to kind of stay in your room and, and play guitar for four years like you could really those people just like move to la and like save yourself that bill, you know? And like, if you're not going to like really like embrace what these schools can offer. Yeah. And you know, the, the people that you meet, like, yeah, I wanted to be in these big bands at, at school or whatever. And then because I had to work hard to get there, it's like you, the people that are there, you know, you're really meeting like the top people at those schools Yeah, because there's like, it's still a hierarchy. Like there's still, like, I mean, there were 800 guitar players at Berkeley when we were there, you know, like not too many of them were like really pursuing these sorts of opportunities. And like, I knew that I wasn't like the best at the school, but I think, you know, I uh, knew that I could like do well in the infrastructure that was there. Like I like yeah. being a student, like, yeah, like do these ratings auditions or whatever. And like, you kind of can give the impression that you earned it, that you deserve to be there, whether or not, you know, You've yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So I think your, I think your approach to it spot on people that are considering going to music school should just, you know, go through everything that Adam said and, and sit down and think about, you know, what you're trying to get out of it. And I think that applies to any college really, you know, Sure. anyway, I've got a couple questions I ask everybody before we leave. Uh, one of them is a new one. I don't know if you've heard this one, but it's like a music recommendation. Is there, are there any artists or players or anybody that you think just need more people to listen to him? Like, is there anything really dope that you love right now? He's not even that unknown, but like th- my friend, uh, Theo Katzman, who he's in the Van Wolfpack. Okay. And he is just on his own, like a very brilliant songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. And he's put out a few records the last few years that I think are really great. Like another one of my best friends, Drew Taubenfeld, who's another guitar player that uh, went to Berkeley at the same time, but he's been putting out these beautiful uh, like solo guitar sort of cool arrangements. And he and I are always kind of talking to each other about how do we find people to listen to our stuff. So I think people right that here. listen, yeah, your podcast listeners would probably enjoy some just beautiful uh, instrumental music. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll put links in the show notes to both yeah. both of them, and uh, I'll check them out myself because it's kind of a it's kind of a selfish question. I just want new music to listen to. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the the last two questions. The first one being, um, was there a time in your career that you decided to redefine what success meant to you? I was thinking about this, and I went back to finding out I lost that Selena Gomez job. Yeah, and how like prior to that, like you know, I kind of fell into this pop guitar world backwards but like i was like oh like maybe this is my foot in the door and this is going to be my like career going forward and i remember feeling like very like a little embarrassed and just like unmoored when i found out that that wasn't going to be like my year you know and then you're kind of like oh like now i have nothing going on this year like how am i ever gonna like find something to do and then you know i remember looking at the end of that year looking back on the stuff that i would have missed out on had i done the tour and just being like kind of like feeling very gratified that things had kind of gone the way that they had. And like, for me, it was kind of closing a door on, you know, pop touring is a huge part of this business, especially for people in their twenties and thirties. But I kind of took that as a moment to refocus maybe on the recording side of things or things that like, I wouldn't have to fall backwards into. Like, I feel like I maybe am deserving of these opportunities in that world. And I feel a little more secure pursuing it. Yeah. So that's kind of when I started picking up some extra instruments and just like kind of planting the seeds of how do I get to that? You know, if I can't be doing this other thing. Yeah. It's, it's funny how those like, uh, I wanted to say this earlier until I forgot like your publishing deal and your touring and they're like side quests, you know, it's like all these things that you do on the way (laughs) they inform like what you end up 
ultimately doing and and what your tastes are and stuff like that. You so people just have to remember that like sometimes shit sucks, but then on the other side, it's probably better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I love it. Uh, and last question is what right now is your current biggest goal and what's the next smallest thing you're going to do to go towards it? Well, personally, I am working on the the fourth of these presidential records. This one's about Abraham Lincoln. Yes. As it should be. Yes, it should be. So I just did my drums two weeks ago and now I'm kind of digging in on the production of that. And, uh, I should mention too, like, uh, because I did kind of get my dream gig about a year and a half ago playing with an artist that I had like just kind of been a huge fan of since I was in high school. I actually, I saw this person play in high school with my guitar teacher. That's awesome. And I remember him telling me like, oh, like maybe like, like this is the kind of job that maybe you could have someday, you know, like, uh, like playing guitar for, it was Amy Mann. Amazing. And then like about a year and a half ago, like I joined her band, um, and we've become close. She actually, she really likes the presidents too. So we've, we've been, <laughs> so we've got a song together on this new one, which is fun That's for amazing. me. And, That's uh, amazing. yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like professionally, um, I would just love to get further into the, this scoring world, you know, like I've played on maybe like a couple movies, but it would be cool to have another one of those calls come in, you know, so you just keep answering the phone when it rings. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And you've got to shout out your guitar teacher from back in the day because he's come up so many times. Yeah, his name's Tyler Campbell. And uh, yeah, he he taught me for like 10 years. He passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. But um, oh. yeah, he had sent a bunch of people to Berkeley. Um, we were all we're still friends now. So I think, uh, yeah, like he definitely like left a bit of an impact. And he was able to at least see me move out here. And like he knew that I was hopefully going to be all right. You know, that's awesome. That's, I, I just, so many people have that like instructor, like early on, like my guitar teacher who also passed away a couple years ago, his name was Scott Olin. They just have such an impact on kids and they just like, you totally. know, they just help so many people and then they just kind of, nobody ever knows, but they, that's oh, yeah. what they, that's what they love. But anyway, dude, this has been a ton of fun. Please, uh, yeah. let everybody know where they can find you. If they want to work together, if they want to listen to the presidents, go for it. Yeah. Uh, my name is Adam Tressler. So I have adamtressler.com, which has all kinds of links and uh, examples of my playing Instagram at Adam Tressler. You know, just no, no surprises there. If you look <laughs> for me, you'll find me. <laughs> awesome. Oh, well, I'll have links in there. And um, dude, it's good to see your face. We'll have to, yeah, uh, I got to hire you to play some guitar. I just need something for you to play yeah, guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Travis. So that's it for episode 88. Thanks to Adam Tressler for coming on the show. Please check him out. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit on this one. As usual, if you've been getting value out of the show, if you've been enjoying it, the most supportive thing you could possibly do for me is to share the show with a friend and to subscribe on YouTube or in the podcast player of your choice. So with that, I will see y'all next time.